This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. This podcast is also sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly, and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. Hello and welcome to our bonus episode of the How We Got Here podcast, Behind the Sounds, Season 6. And I'm joined right now by Colton Weekly, our executive producer, and of course, digital director Kate Albright. Season 6 had the Omicron variant, had us out of the building, had us doing some interviews in person, some interviews started moving to Zoom. It was a hard season to do. I think we went from peak pandemic of 20,000 cases a day to where we sit right now of a couple hundred and the positivity rate down to three and a half percent from 20 plus percent. So I know we said, I think in season five, it was a roller coaster, but I think that roller coaster was the kiddie ride compared to what we did here for season six. How do you know the numbers? This is why Colton is the nerd on our podcast. Let's start with episode one. And there was a story that Colton kept going, why are we putting this in episode one? What is? What about history is this? And this was the Circuit City story. And it's such a good story. And, you know, it's not your typical history story, but it's a historic moment. And I think what really gets people about that story, and tell me if I'm wrong here, Colton, the nostalgia, we hit you right off the top with it. and and kind of made you care. A lot of times stories don't necessarily resonate with our typical TV viewers. This one did because they remembered it. People went to that store on Broad Street. And then of course they started talking about all the other stores that have come and gone in Richmond. Like Rachel said, that kind of unexpected on my end too, in that this wasn't, as Rachel would say, a civil war story or a revolutionary war story. You know, as she's noted, are kind of the things that I enjoy talking about and writing about more. But I think this was a nice kind of balance to the Civil War and Revolutionary War stories of bringing us within something that happened, you know, within the last 10 or 15 years. And yeah, just to kind of resonate with those folks that, uh, like Kate said, walked into that store and knew it well. The part in that story where he could have purchased Best Buy and that would have just changed everything, including in Richmond. The other thing about that episode that I have to point out, because I know how much you guys all love my jokes. And there was a moment in that episode, they they both made really bad faces at me when I said that, by the way, for everyone listening. <laughs> when I said in that episode that I needed to find my Zach Morris cell phone, Colton had no idea what I was talking about. I did. I knew. I knew. Colton's the youthful one in this group. I was astounded. <laughs> He doesn't look it. He doesn't. Anyway, I was astounded that that reference to Saved by the Bell and Zach Morris just died a slow death in that podcast with Colton. 
I will admit that I had never heard those words put together by anyone in my entire life when she mentioned that. And then she laughed at me and like I was supposed to know what that was. So I apologize to everyone who knows what that is. But that's probably the one like culty show, I guess, that people talk about that are my age or a little bit older. I honestly can tell you I've never watched more than like three minutes of any of that show. All right, episode one, the second story was the Ironclads. The Battle of the Virginia slash Merrimack and Monitor. And this was one that I had to write and did the interview with Ed Moore. And then immediately after said, Colton, I need your help. Please go over this story with me. This is not in my wheelhouse, but I think it turned out okay. Yeah, I, th- I think it did. I This not in your wheelhouse, but more so in mine. And this is a story that I love in that there isn't necessarily a clear winner. It's not like one of these ships sank that day, but it did kind of welcome in this new era of warfare that, you know, could have changed the entire landscape of the Civil War. What I thought most poignant about that episode was when Ed Moore said that without the monitor, the Virginia could have just sailed right up the James and or could have sailed up the East Coast and blasted DC and blasted Boston and it would have been a done deal just because they put, you know, how many inches of steel on the side of a wooden ship, and that's all it took. Um, And the ingenuity of uh, John Erickson, and they built the monitor in 100 days or whatever it was, which is just unbelievable considering how many months it took to to build a Virginia. That story kind of has it all of different avenues of history we could be on, and it all ended with a stalemate in Hampton Roads. Who doesn't love a boat? says the other Minnesotan. So we're off to a hot start here. <laughs> also, the thing about that story that I'd like to point out for our audience, it's a quirky moment that I wanted to put in and forgot to put in actually. And I think I did at the end maybe, but Ed Moore, the wonderful guest from the Mariners Museum, he's with the Speakers Bureau. We loved having him about John Paul Jones on season five. And we brought him back for this. We knew he was the perfect person to talk to. The first thing he said to me when we got on that interview was, I fixed my creaky chair <laughs> because the entire John Paul episode, you could hear the creaking and I referenced it and said it was like an old creaky ship and I loved it. But the first thing he said is I fixed my chair and I loved that, that he listened and he really appreciated it and he wanted to be back with us. Episode two, I will say, admittedly, this turned into one of my favorite stories. And I went into Lafayette, the Marquis de Lafayette, thinking that it was just going to be about when he showed up in Virginia and what he did. But as we soon found out, I decided to go into his whole life story. Yeah, I think my favorite part of that episode was just his spite for the King of France. Towards the end, when he, after he spurned him once, you know, right in his face and then he comes back to court and is wearing the uniform of the Americans in French court in front of the king is fantastic. I'd never known that um, ahead of this episode in this interview. That to me painted the picture of this young, kind of maybe arrogant, rich, you know, politically connected, not afraid to basically say, you know, screw off king, I'm gonna go do what I wanna do. And then to become kind of an American celebrity after doing that in French court, I think paints an early picture perhaps of French and American relationships for generations to follow. 
Sam Fleur was so good in that episode. And we went and we talked to him in person at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. There was construction going on all around us because, as you know, they're they're fixing up the Virginia Museum of History and Culture and our ads that we have for the podcast. That's me. That is, if you guys are wondering, cool behind the scenes fact, Kate does all of the sponsorship moments that you hear. That is her voice. It's a lovely voice. She does such a good job. David Diggs played Lafayette in Hamilton, and that kind of drew you and me in. Like, and Stan Colton, by the way, we've this has been a long running thing. He finally saw Hamilton. He finally sat down and watched it one night. His wife went out of town, and he wasn't supposed to tell her that I'm not supposed to make this known, but I'm going to. He watched it without her. Does she know? Oh, yes. <laughs> talk about because you are the one that really introduced me to Hamilton because you kept making Hamilton wanting me to add Hamilton jokes and I was like what are you talking about Kate? his character in Hamilton makes so much more sense you think that it's like you know this big flamboyant exaggeration of his personality but when you hear about his actual life story that's not the case it makes a lot more sense he was 19 years old basically spit in the king of France's face came to America by himself just on his own accord with his own people, hired his own crew, showed up and said, I'm going to help you with a war. Also in that episode, James Madison and Hillary Hicks with Montpelier, who talked to us about James Madison's birth. And that was a story that I was like, wait, is this going to be that interesting? I don't know. But it actually was. And I think with him and later on with Jefferson, we're going to talk about, to me, it's the contradictions of these people that we've covered and, and know so much about to dive deeper and take a harder look at all of the things that they fought for. They fought for the freedom of the people in this country, but not everyone in this country. And I think that those are moments that are make you stop and think. They saw the inequity. They saw the problems. It's hard to reconcile today. It really illuminates, I think, kind of the blind eye that they turn to people of color in fighting for the freedom of this country. And as Rachel said, growing up around, you know, with enslaved people around them, you have to think at some point with how smart and brilliant these men were that these enslaved people, whether in their homes or on their plantations that they owned, you know, however many miles away, at some point it had to have crossed their mind. Yeah, like he wrote genius. these amazing words and genius. absolute genius. He worked on the Federalist Papers with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. There's so many words of his that we have today. He's the reason, one of the main reasons, some people will argue, that we have separation of church and state such an important figure to learn about their childhood. And it's funny because these figures often don't talk about their childhood and we don't get the details that we would normally want to get to how, how someone was shaped, what shaped their life. But he had an impact. He's a Virginian and it was worth talking about in all facets. So one thing that surprised me about the Madison segment was the fact that he may have been epileptic. You know, he, I think he described it as the feebleness of his conscience or something. You know, Hillary Hicks with at Montpelier said that he kind of seemed to catch everything that was going around. So knowing all of that and knowing the times in which we're talking about in the late 18th century, incredible one that he made it that far to become the father of the Constitution because he easily could have died a teenager without writing any Constitution. Uh, worth noting, and we've talked about her in past seasons, but James Madison was nothing in D.C. without Dolly Madison. 
it's often juxtaposed of, oh, this woman wouldn't have been known if not for her husband, but it's the other way around here with James and that Dolly welcomed all these guests to the White House and played host to her quiet little shy James, who was just kind of a brilliant nerd, I guess you could say, right, with the Constitution and whatnot. And a lot of different, again, facets of him that you you hear, oh, Constitution, you think Montpelier, he was actually born in modern day King George County, which is something that I didn't know. And the fact that he was so susceptible to getting sick and he lived the longest. He was the last founding father alive that he actually knew that's what people called him and didn't like it. I liked that moment too, that he knew that he was being called that. When someone called him that, he said that, no, it had been the work of many heads and many hands. This is the part of the season where Colton got extremely upset that I went and did an interview because I went to St. John's Church and I came back and he was so upset that I sat in the pew in the section that Patrick Henry stood and delivered his famous speech. (laughs) They did a special performance of it for me while I was there. Yeah, to get a private reenactment inside the church where it actually happened is pretty... Yes, I was bitter. I think I was more bitter that also in times when I visited the church, rightfully so, they have that little section, you know, kind of roped off and blocked off because they don't want, you know, people climbing all over it or making it worse. And I said, oh, Rachel, I bet you sat, you know, right next to it or behind it when you did the interview because they have it roped off. It's like, oh, no, I sat right there. And I was upset. I was upset by that. That's true. But no, if you haven't been to St. John's Church in Richmond, make a point to go. You're not going to get a private reenactment, sorry to say, but um, the church itself is fantastic. The grounds are really cool to see some of these headstones from the late 18th century as well. And I I love that part in that story where the gentleman who was looking through the window and it inspired him so much to, you know, join the militia and he's buried right there outside that window that he was peeking in during the speech. I love that. Um, Didn't know that before. This was Rachel's crown jewel of this season. She put that damn speech in every season beforehand, made a point to. And when we were coming up to this and we were looking at stories, she was so thrilled to come to my desk and she said, guess what, guess what? And she said, look at what's coming in episode three. And I saw it, I sighed, and then I spun my chair away from her. This was the first time, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but this was the first time we learned in the podcast that he kind of just ad-libbed that entire speech, which, wow. The part in the story for me was that last line of the speech that we know he said was on shirts at that time. They put it on things all the way back in that time. It's a statement we hear today. We all know. It probably gets a visceral reaction from people when you hear that statement. This is when Rachel wants to play it. Kate's right. But I'm not just going to play the normal speech because I didn't in our special episode play, Colton hates when I say this, my fantastic remix. This is the moment in this bonus episode that I will play it for you all right now. Let it come! Forbid it, almighty God! Let it come! Forbid it! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, 
for beating Almighty God. Let it come. Give me liberty or give me death. I think it's funny that Rachel calls it her fantastic remix when I wrote it, but I'm ashamed of the monster I've created. We all are. (laughs) The church loves it, by the way. The church foundation, the St. John's Church Foundation, Stephen Wilson. I played it for them in the church where Patrick Henry gave his speech. I played our remix, Colton, and they loved it. They asked if they could share it. Please, for the love of all that is holy to this country, tell me that you did not play it while you were sitting in the pew where he rose from. I played it outside of the church. You're right. (laughs) I didn't cross the threshold and play it inside. Also in episode three, Henry Box Brown. And this was probably my favorite story of this season. Kate is shaking her head yes as well. I did not know this story. I knew nothing about it. And it just sits with you. That someone would cram themselves into a box the size of a dog crate and be shipped and live in that box for more than 24 hours so that they can escape the bonds of slavery that they're going to trap themselves in a box to be free. Yeah, and this is a story that I had heard a headline of before we did this podcast. And this was something that I had always planned on us doing in one way or another, depending on when we got to the date. And so I was pleased when we got to season six that this date fell in here. And I think that Brittany Hutchinson with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture did a great job of telling this story as well, because it is difficult to just even imagine this that the lengths that someone would go because of how brutal and how awful being enslaved was. I think the story itself of at one point thinking he was going to pass out and die because he had been flipped upside down for so long. That's one thing, right, about this journey. The other thing that we mentioned in the segment, if you cough, you make a sound loud enough, you're going to be discovered. And if you aren't tortured to death, you'll be tortured to near death and start right back where you were before. This was truly, I would say, I mean, an all or nothing bid for freedom. Jamestown Massacre. And I hesitate to call it that in episode three because we have the fantastic Luke Pecorero join us. And he was very clear right away that looking at this event now, 400 years ago, the week that we dropped this episode, he said, we don't have the full context. We never have had the full context. And how do you call something a massacre? or an uprising when one side wasn't less than the other, when there were more Powhatan than there were colonists. And the, you know, the whole situation viewed now looks different than it was probably written in textbooks 60 years ago. One of the many reasons why we love having Luke on the podcast is for many of the stories, we come to him with, you know, one or two lines of these events that happened in the 17th century in modern day Virginia. You know, so there's not a whole lot to go off of in the historical record, but we go into the segments from our end expecting kind of a couple facts here, a couple facts there, and here's some kind of context for the facts. But Luke always kind of takes it to the next level and makes you think about, well, we know this, so here's fact, fact, fact. But here's what we don't know, and that's why you need to think about this differently than 
what you have with just the facts in it for itself, if that makes sense. Again, calling it the massacre, and I think it was 349 colonists killed, and at the time that was around 1,100 estimated total around Jamestown in the colony at the time. Obviously, that is a massive percentage um, of the colonists who were here. The context around the story, I think, is also so important. From what we know, this was not a an effort by the Powhatan to wipe out Jamestown. This was an effort to reassert control over the colonists by the Powhatan to say, hey, don't forget about whose land you're on. This is ours. And kind of how that kind of tipped off what would come in not only just the years to follow, but the four centuries to follow. Episode four, Kate, I know you liked this one a lot. John Tyler, his accidency. I did not know much about John Tyler. And it's funny because I guess there's a reason why in history you don't know much about John Tyler for many circumstances into how he ascended to the office. I knew that he was a president who got there because another president died, but I didn't even know the real consequences or the thoughts behind. He was the first. There were no rules. They had to figure out what to do when Henry Harrison died and John Tyler sitting there. And also John Tyler was a throwaway to the parties to be on the ticket. I am still shocked that he has a living grandson. That's, in, that's insanity. When you heard that for the first time and the breakdown of there were two, one died recently, just recently. Their wives were like 30 years younger than them. I mean, it still doesn't make sense to me, but it's crazy. In this part of the story, when I hear John Tyler, I think Steven Tyler. <laughs> because when we saw upcoming for this season that we were going to cover John Tyler, the first thing I said to Rachel, only because I had seen this previously a couple years ago, was that, Rachel, I know we have to cover, you know, what we need to know about John Tyler. I said, but I, we will talk about his living, at the time, grandchildren, now grandson. And again, this is to the best of our knowledge that this final grandson is still with us. I believe he's 93 or 95, but I think he still lives in central Virginia. I think Charles City County, but don't quote me on that. But that's kind of what we can find. To step away from the John Tyler story itself... The fact that there is a grandson of a man who was born in the 1700s is like baffling, doesn't quite do it. He was number 10. We are 36 presidents removed and he has a grandson who got to vote in the last election. Bread Riots and Karen Cherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. That's another story I did not know, but it resonates so much with us today as we are all in record inflation right now in a small way because we're talking about two different eras, but they had so much inflation, a war going on. All the men are away. The women are left in the city at this point and they have no food and they're asking for fair prices. And that to me was just an interesting juxtaposition as far as also when they rioted and what you call a riot or what you consider a riot changes depending on your generation, depending on how old you are, depending on what you fought for at one point. I don't know. That was a discussion I didn't know was going to come out of that. This story hit me in three places because girl power. This was women taking to the streets, having their voices heard. 
It also reminded me of the demonstrations, protests, riots, all of those words were used just very recently within our own city about a completely different thing. And then Rachel's right. Right now we are dealing with higher costs of food and it can be incredibly hard for families. This just really hit me in a lot of different areas. And one thing I love about this story, and actually there are a handful of stories that got me interested in history and Richmond history and Virginia history when I moved here in 2016. This is one of them that I stumbled on one day, I think on the Facebook page of the Virginia Department of Historic Resources of all places. And they had just did a little write-up with a photo from the Library of Congress about the Richmond Red Riots. And I read that and I was just fascinated because I recognized some of the places where this had happened in the city. So that kind of piqued my history interest. And here we are six years later and six podcast seasons later as well. But we hear so much about the Civil War. When you talk about the Civil War, a lot of it is centered around battles. You know, who won this or Appomattox, whatever, X, Y, Z. The next layer might be the economy, right? So, and boiled down, people say, well, the South wanted slaves and the North didn't. But you rarely get a look into a, take a telescope into a local economy during the Civil War. And you really kind of have to dig if you want to get there. And I think that's what this story represents in that the local economy of the city of Richmond, of the Confederate capital during the Civil War, was a mess. I mean, it was brutal. Whether there wasn't enough housing for people, which there wasn't, because all the wood that we used to build homes is out on the battlefield, right? So there's a you know a couple different books that I've read about just the Richmond economy itself, and this is a perfect example of things were not good here, and there was efforts to make it not known in the North that things were not good in Richmond. But when you get down and you read some of those letters from people who lived in the city during the war, you learn about the bread riot, there were very few saving graces in Richmond during this time. And I think to illustrate just how bad things were at that point, gives us kind of an extra glimpse and I think a valuable glimpse into the everyday life of the average Southern citizen and not, what did Jefferson Davis do? What did Ulysses Grant do? What did Lincoln say? Right, it's it's the Joe Schmo of Richmond and how life was, well, he was out in the battlefield probably, but how life was for women in Richmond and it was not good. It's the perfect segue to a series of stories that are all interconnected that we ended up covering this season. And it starts with the day Robert E. Lee tells the city of Richmond to evacuate. And Jeff Davis orders the evacuation eventually and the burning of Richmond all on April 2nd, 1865. And that we got Nelson Lankford to talk to us. That was Colton and I's kind of shining moment. He was like, I don't know if he'll respond to my email. And he responded right away. Yeah, I think he's, you know, a very well-known author, especially on this topic, right? Because he wrote the book, Richmond Burning. When we got an email address for him, I said, Rachel, there is a 5% chance this guy even responds, let alone agrees to do this. And I think he responded the same day and said, oh, yeah, of course, let's set up a time. And I was stunned because talk about somebody who knows what they're talking about. I mean, he's written a book and he's working on a second. That's the perfect kind of expert view. And that's not to say anything poorly about our other experts because all of these people know exactly what they're talking about and you know deserve to be called experts. Um, but yeah, Mr. Langford was a an extra special guest, certainly. And the segment, I think, turned out great. And people always think the whole city burned to the ground because you hear Richmond burn. It's like, oh, there was one building left and it was the Capitol. And I was just surprised to find out because everything you read says something similar. And Nelson said, no, it was actually about one-tenth of the city. It was just this you know one district. But 
is that potentially how we learned history? And we talk about how the North wanted to see all these pictures on these giant, you know, glass plate negatives of this is what happens to the sin of secession. Your city burns, right? So is that how we learned history of this, you know, this horrible Confederacy capital in Richmond? Look what happened to them after, you know, this long war, their whole city burned down. Well, no, just a little bit. I mean, a good good chunk of it, but not every single building. And I think even I learned that when the war was over, you know, the, the city burned to the ground. Lee surrendered at Appomattox a week later. But that's not the case. And I think it's it's so important to know that history. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't know anything about the Civil War. We just didn't really learn about it in my schooling. I'm the Colton's the war expert. I'm the one who knows nothing. I learn everything from this podcast. Um, (laughs) And so when I first moved to Richmond and I saw the remnants of the bridge, you know, across the James River and was told, yeah, that's when they burned the city down. I really did picture them burning the entire city down. It's interesting because before we get into episode five, I must point out that we plan to have four stories for you in episode five. But one of those stories is currently, as I am speaking, still being written and it was such a monster that I couldn't make episode five two hours. I just couldn't do it. So we decided to give you a bonus episode, letting you know that when this season ends, after this episode of Behind the Sounds, you will get another episode about the day that Lincoln visited Richmond. But Colton will tell you a little tease here. It's so much more than the day Lincoln visited Richmond after Richmond fell. Yes, and we're going back to our day one roots with a guest that I hope all of you love as much as we do, Mike Gorman with the Richmond National Battlefield Park. Rachel did most of almost all of the interviews for season six, except for the Mike Gorman interview. Um, and there's a reason for that, because when I talked to Mike Gorman, we spoke for almost two and a half hours. Rachel would never let an interview go that long because she'd be getting nervous after about 30 minutes. But I just let it ride because I love listening to Mike Gorman, and I hope you do too, because this bonus episode is fantastic. There are accounts of Lincoln's visit to Richmond, but there is trouble with some of the accounts while there is more clarity in others, if that's a tease, if you can call it that. Kate just said this tease is about as long as the episode and, you know, Colton's still writing it. So last time he showed me was an hour long, guys. (laughs) FYI. (laughs) Episode five. Kate has not heard this yet. She's about to. Booker T. Washington. Brittany Hutchinson comes back and talks about Booker. And I feel like every February, people learn about different African-American history makers. And Booker T. Washington is always one of them. But I also feel like you only get over surface level. And we go deep in. And I think that this is a really good story about the changes in generations and the changes in the way people review rebellion and speaking out and civil rights. And I was surprised by this story. This was as timely a story about black history as there could have been, I think. And I wasn't sure what to expect from this segment either, Rachel. And when you and I read over it not long ago, 85% of it, I didn't know. I didn't know that Booker T. Washington was born in Virginia until we had started researching this segment, which like, bang, there's number one, right? That was enough for me. Of course, we're going to do this. But then the whole story, like you said, I think of, if you want to say the changing of the guard of civil rights, of how do we move forward, you know, and how he was looked at at a time as being the voice of the generation and then being looked at as, 
you know, too old, you don't understand how the world works now, we have to change it up. And kind of that, how that changed for him, I think is, as I said, just, I think so timely to the world that we live in now. Appomattox. This was a story I was really excited to tell because I don't know a lot about Appomattox. I've never been personally. I still have not been to Appomattox Courthouse and now I really want to go. And we talked to Patrick Schroeder and he was amazing. And he's with the National Park Service. He talked to Mike Gorman just before he did the interview with me. And he had just a lot of gems in there about what happened between these two men and how much we don't know about what happened for an hour in a room. Yeah, and before we read this segment, Rachel told me that Patrick had talked with Mike Gorman before the interview. And I said, Rachel, you don't need to tell me anything else because if this guy's friends with Mike Gorman, I know this is going to be a fantastic interview. You are such a fanboy. <laughs> and, get, and guess what? It was a fantastic interview and the segment is fantastic as well. Yeah, kind of echoing what Rachel said, everyone hears Appomattox and they think, oh, Lee surrendered and rode away on Traveler and is the end of the war. Well, not really. The details of that day, again, some we know, some we don't whole apple tree story was fantastic if you haven't listened to the segment yet and you're jumping ahead to this episode for some reason go back and listen to it but yeah i think that again appomattox is the bookmark on the end of the civil war for a lot of people when that's not the case and then again getting back to details about some of these events the more that we can know these events the more we can understand them and the more i think that we can respect them but also learn from them Last part in that episode, Pocahontas. And this was another story that I was like, do we tell this story? But I am so glad we did because I think that there is an image of Pocahontas that is commercial, that is Disneyfied, that is out there. And to be honest, Bly really breaks it down so simply to say, we don't know her. We don't know what she was thinking. There's not a piece of writing that exists today about her that isn't written by a man. We have no tangible piece of her thoughts that have survived to this day. So when she's held captive, when she marries John Rolfe, what was she really thinking? We have no idea. What was her dad really sending her in these public places for? She's thought of as the favorite daughter, but was she the favorite daughter? Do you send your most precious daughter to a place like this where you don't know if she's going to come back. There's so much there. Bly was so amazing because she said, when I was preparing for this episode to talk to you, she said, I kept thinking, what would Pocahontas think? And we don't know. And I think that the story of Pocahontas is as much about what we don't know about as it is what we do. It's the in-between that, that Bly mentions throughout the segment of, again, this is all white men writing about this oftentimes years after it happened. And then I think the end of Pocahontas' life is also very fascinating to me and how kind of this whole journey. After hearing about all these stories about her, you think she's kind of an older woman at the time. No, she was what, 23-ish, 21-ish, right? And because you hear all these stories and the whole Disneyfied thing, you it almost makes you think, oh, she lived to be, you know, like women of the time of 40 or 50, or maybe even 60. Was, you know, she was 23, meaning when her journey started or what we do know about her journey started, she was maybe less than a teenager. She's a child. That's something I think that's not in our heads because of the images that we have of her 
you know, even as Bly said, even on products that they used to sell that image that they used in the 50s and 60s of this is what it is to be American, Mother America. Would she even think that? But that's what she was turned into for all of us growing up. So it's interesting to me that segment really struck a chord with me of so much that we didn't know and we do know. And finally, episode six. Monticello, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson being born at Shadwell, and our guest, Dana Kelly. Amazing. I wasn't sure what to get out of this episode. Just he's born. And most of the time when we talk to people, when someone is famous that we know is born, they go, well, there's not really much written. But with Thomas Jefferson, he actually did tell stories from his youth and write about his youth. So we have these moments that tell us how this brilliant man with a lot of contradictions came to be. And I think in the last decade, it's fair to say that there has been innumerable books, articles, media on Thomas Jefferson. And it's all focused on, not all, but most of it is focused on Sally Hemings, Monticello, When we looked at this episode, I said, Rachel, I want to do his early years because we know enough about the Declaration of Independence. I mean, maybe we arguably don't know enough about that, but we don't hear often enough about his childhood. And so that's what I wanted this, the focus to be here. And I think that we, we went in knowing, are we going to get the, no, not much is known, but here's what we know about his adult life. And then we're going to have to, oh, are we going to write, you know, write this, like everything else has been written. But I think that Dana was fantastic in the stories that we have about his childhood. And I think that there's one story that really kind of struck me was growing up at the bottom of a mountain and where he played and where he lived. And he envisioned one day I'm going to live at the top of this mountain. And it became Monticello. But yeah, that story really struck me as one that I'd never heard about Jefferson. And it was incredibly interesting. We also went into this, Rachel, I said, I don't know much about his younger life. I think he's described a lot as kind of a red-haired, lanky nerd. Because as Rachel was preparing for the interview, I said, that's really all I've got for you. True story. That was the picture we had, right? Of this red-haired, lanky nerd and going to college with William and Mary and eventually enslaved people and built Monticello. That's what we, grazing the surface of Jefferson's younger years. So this was an effort, I think, for us to try to illuminate some of those experiences he had when he was younger. Again, the more light I think we can shine on some of these lesser known truths or stories of these men who many revere and others detest helps us paint a better picture to, to make up our minds for ourselves. I always live in the gray, never the black and the white. It's, it's like there's always something in the middle of how someone was shaped and how they became who they were. And it's important to know all of the aspects, the good, the bad, the ugly. We were gonna have two stories in episode six And I kept going to Colton over and over and desperately telling him that I could not write this story. And you heard in the episode why I couldn't write that story. I think I laid it out pretty clear. And I just wanted to say I'm sorry that I couldn't write that story. And I think that Kate and I had discussed this prior as well. And Rachel mentions in the segment that she had purposely avoided doing a season around April 16th for this reason. And I think when this season came up and we knew that this was going to be in the season, and I don't want to speak for Kate, but I think we thought, Kate and I thought, once we get to episode six, 
after going through kind of these first five episodes, perhaps Rachel will be ready at that point to tell that story. And as Rachel just said, I think she made it very clear to me that that wasn't the case. I still want it to be a presence in that episode because I think that date means so much to people in Virginia. And that kind of brings you a little bit behind the scenes to what we do in our regular job in news, because these stories do impact us that we cover. And Rachel's not the first person who doesn't want to relive relive something that they cover like this. So I think the respect of honoring that is very important because everyone who was there that day experienced something different. I do hope what we did do helped people in Virginia honor that day in a small way. And you can know that I want to one day do that, but I did, sometimes you just don't know. And I think that maybe that segment was as much about mental health as it was about an event in history. season overall. It covered a lot of bases and we had a lot of older history this time, but I liked the stories that we got to tell just what happened at this time of the year, right? We do it week by week. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. Exactly. I think overall this was another successful season. I don't think we've had an unsuccessful season. I think that we didn't have segments of monstrous proportions. Thinking of the Lee segment, season three, episode six, that was a monster. Our monster this season will be that bonus episode that's coming your way shortly after this episode drops. And on that note, that's a wrap on season six for Kate, Colton, and I. Thank you all so much for going on this journey with us and listening to all these stories and being with us. We see you, we hear you, we feel your support, and we see your downloads. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Rachel sends us screenshots of all the comments that she likes that you leave for us. And there's one listener I want you to know. You said that you love Rachel's jokes. That gave her more fuel. And so if you hear any more jokes at any point, just know that it's because of you and not me. (laughs) In case the bonus episode is ready at the very end of this season, which I'm not convinced, but if it is ready, we'll be back in your life next Monday if Colton finishes writing it.